This week, something terrible happened. I think it was this week. Um, it's in Congress. Go figure. Um, and uh, maybe some of you saw it. The, there was a, a bill that would have outlawed uh, termination of pregnancy after 20 weeks. I think 20 weeks. And uh, it was uh, voted that they, well, it wasn't voted down. They, 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 they didn't clear the filibuster, and so it died, essentially. Um, now, I know that if you've been here very often at all, you know I, I don't delve into the political realm very often because, number one, abortion is a complex issue. Sure. And uh, to think that merely changing laws is the solution to the problem is, is short-sighted. Um, I also don't delve into politics a lot because uh, people who follow Jesus come to different conclusions on a whole lot of things, from tax policy to trade policy, you know, foreign policy. And I will grant that, you know, we can, we're going to have to agree to disagree on a whole lot of stuff, even really serious stuff, like caring for the poor and, and, and even wars, things like that. Christians who follow Jesus are going to disagree on things like that. But I don't, for the life of me, uh, I mean, I can't understand how this is something that we would agree to disagree on. Because one of the most disturbing things to me is that of the hundred senators in our Senate right now, all but four claim either Judaism or Christianity as their faith. And if you go to the, just the Old Testament alone and you search through the Old Testament, you don't have to search for very long. It's not ambiguous. It's not a mystery how God feels about coming to the defense of the defenseless, about knitting us together in our mother's wombs and how he knows us even prior to that point. It's just not ambiguous. And even the secular world that we live in recognizes this. There's only seven countries that permit elective abortions after the 20th week. There's only seven. And you might think that they're, maybe you think they're, they're, they're the liberal, progressive democracies of Europe. Well, you would be right. There's one of them. The Netherlands is one of them. I just want to read the list to you. The the Netherlands is one of those countries. Then there's Canada. It's legal for nine months in Canada. Then the other five are Singapore, Vietnam, China, North Korea, and the U.S. of A. not legal anywhere else for any reason at at that stage of pregnancy. And so this forces upon me an uncomfortable question, one I don't uh, like to ask very very often because you quickly get into this zone, this judgment zone, and I'll talk about the judgment zone a little bit later, but it forces upon a question. If 96 people who claim to be either Jews or Christians, can't even get to a point where they will allow a discussion and a vote on this, to, let alone vote for it. They won't even allow it to get to the point where you can vote. And you have Republicans and Democrats both voting down. So this is not a one-sided issue. You had Democrats who voted to go forward with the vote, and you had Republicans who, who helped to kill the debate. you got to wonder, what is a true Jew? What is a true Christian? Can you hold this belief that it is okay 
to take a seven, eight, nine-month-old fetus and, and do that to it and still really be a Jew and still really be a Christian? Maybe it makes you uncomfortable. The Apostle Paul, he made an awful lot of people uncomfortable. And it's really no wonder that as he goes, uh, this is in the very first century, just a couple of decades after Jesus uh, was killed. He's going from town to town, planting churches, telling people about Jesus. And he's always preaching in the synagogues because Christianity, the synagogues, that's the Jewish temple, the Jewish church, not the temple. The Jewish church would be a synagogue. And he would go there to preach because uh, Christianity came from Judaism. Jesus was a Jew. So that's why he would always start there. And then uh, almost invariably, they would run him out of town. They would run him out of town. Most commonly because of this message. Because he essentially said, I don't care what you say you are. I don't care what rules you follow. I don't care what you believe in your head. I don't care what marks are on your body. A true Jew is known by the lifestyle that he lives. A true Jew is one, we'll hear him saying a little bit, true circumcision is circumcision of the heart. And that was terribly, terribly controversial. It got him flogged, kicked out of town, arrested. He didn't have a lot of friends in many of the towns that he went to because his message was just so revolutionary. We have to get in that mind frame. Before we read any of Paul's letters, we really have to pause and just think a minute about who he's talking to. Who is he talking to here in the book of Romans? We're going through Romans, and and we're on the back half of chapter 2. Let's talk about who he's talking to. In the Christian church, I've already mentioned, Christianity came from Judaism. So you had, on the one hand, Jews who were followers, the, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who saw in Jesus the promised Messiah that the Old Testament talked about the whole time. And they recognized him. And they got excited. And they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is him, everybody. Listen up. And they got it. And they were persecuted by their own people because of it. But they converted to Christianity. They would not have called it conversion. They didn't think they were changing religion. No, no. This was the fulfillment of of Judaism. They weren't changing anything. This was just the fulfillment of it. Then on the other hand, so you had the Jews who became Christians. Then on the other hand, you had the Gentiles. It just means non-Jews. Who also, they didn't know much about Torah. That's the, the law that God gave to Moses. They didn't know much about that. They didn't know much about Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. They might have heard this thing about circumcision, and you, they didn't want any part of that. You can, you can, you can, you can be assured of that. Uh, but they heard the story about Jesus, and they heard about his miracles, and they heard then uh, the, 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 the icing on top of the cake, that he died uh, the death of a criminal, and that God raised him from the dead, and people seen him alive walking around again. And that he offered salvation and eternal life and new life to anybody who would trust in him. And they found that when they trusted in him, when they believed in him, something happened. They changed their entire lives, their hearts, their, their worldview. Everything changed. And so these two populations of people, the Jews and, and the, the, the Jewish Christians and the Gentiles, they come together because they're both persecuted 
and wherever else they came from. So they come together. They find in each other people of, of common cause, and they start these little communities. And in these little communities, they start to pray together. They start to read the scriptures together. They start to worship together and sing together. And then, then these guys, like Paul, would come into their town and would encourage them and come from Jerusalem and tell them what's going on in Jerusalem with the apostles. They'd tell them about the teachings of all these guys who live with Jesus, and they'd encourage them. And then they take up a collection to go and support that and support other new church plants. And, 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 and what, is, what is happening? The church is born. And that's what's happened. But it caused a whole lot of conflict, too. It caused a whole lot of conflict because, again, from the beginning, uh, the Jews, many times, the Jews said, you know, this is great that these non-Jewish people are coming in and, they're, and they're, they're believing. This is great news. But you know what they really need to do? They need to trust in Jesus and be baptized. Sure, of course, of course, of course. But you know what they really need to do is they need to be circumcised. They need to stop eating bacon. They need to, and on and on, the Jewish ceremony. They, they got to look like a Jew outwardly if they're going to become one of us. Paul had no time for that kind of nonsense. He railed against it again and again. Most famously, you can read the book of Galatians. It's not very long. You can read that and you'll get a taste immediately for what Paul thought about what he would call Judaizers. People who says everybody who's going to be a Christian, you got to look like a Jew. you got to look like us to be a Christian. He had no time for that, whatever. I think it's in the fifth chapter, maybe 512, you can look it up. He's saying against those who would say, he says, basically I'm a paraphrasing. He says, to those of you saying that you have to, to those of you who say you have to be circumcised to be part of the way, to be part, to be a Christian, I wish those people would go all the rest of the way and emasculate themselves. Hey, it's just scripture, folks. <laughs> Isn't that funny? That's kind of funny, right? But it's also like, tell us what you really feel, Paul. Right? He can't say it any more forcefully than that. So that's what we have going on here. He's trying to make sense of what does it mean to be a Jew? He's talking to the Jewish Christians. Is being a Jew still of value? Does it mean anything anymore? And he's also talking about to the, to the Gentile Christians about what it means now to follow Jesus and to forsake your pagan ways. Last week, we talked a lot about this thing called moralism, like I'm better than those people, that kind of attitude. And Paul calls that out. Uh, you might think he's talking mostly to the Gentile Christians who are thinking, you know, he, he, Paul lists a whole bunch of sins. Uh, it talks about how the world is uh, basically going to hell in a handbasket. And, and, but then he says, you who judge. Like you who've heard me list all these sins and talk about all those people. You've heard me now talk, go on and on about them. If you're starting to feel any better about yourself, check yourself. Because you who judge, are you any better? Do you not do the same things? And he kind of puts them in their place. We talked about judgment last week. Let's just recap real quick. You got your bulletin there. I have a couple just recap. Hopefully I did a good job explaining what, how Christians judge. Because Christians are absolutely supposed to judge uh, behavior. Christians, I think you would go ahead with the first one. That Christians must call evil what it is. They must. In fact, not calling evil evil is what Paul is railing against. He's saying that's the problem with the world, is that the world calls evil good and good evil. That's the problem. Christians of all people have to call evil evil. 
We've got to call it out. However, then now it gets complicated. We don't live in a black and white world. I'm sorry if you're a black and white person and you just want yes, no answers to everything because it's going to get complicated right now because what happens to us as soon as we start to judge behaviors? We have to do it humbly because we almost always judge behaviors selectively. We almost always judge behaviors selectively. We condemn the person who, for that position on abortion, but we excuse the inappropriate thoughts or actions in our own lifestyle, or we don't think of them as being all that serious. You see, I could go on. That's what I mean. When we, 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 we judge behavior selectively. And the world sees that. That's why they call Christians hypocrites. The world sees that. And so we got to find a way to be faithful to who we are and to, and to call evil evil, but at the same time, to be very humble about ourselves. And that old bumper sticker saying, love the sinner, hate the sin, it doesn't work. It sounds really good. It sounds great. Like it's your, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work. If I love collecting baseball cards, and it's like what I do for three hours a day, and you want to be my friend, but you loathe baseball cards, you can't, how do you, I'm not going to just, I'm not going to sense, oh, they just don't like this thing that I do, but they really love me. No, it's like a big part of what I do. You see, so it's just complicated. We got to be prayerful. We got to be humble. Here's a rule of thumb. I'm going to move on from this now, but I'll give you a rule of thumb that has helped me before I move on. Uh, always, here, you listening? This is important. Here, always be more offended by your own sin than anybody else's. If that is true of you, you're probably in an okay place. Always be more offended, more scandalized, more bothered by your own sin than the sin of anybody else. I'm not saying don't be bothered by other people's sin. You get me? But if you're always bothered more by your own sin than by anybody else's sin, by God's grace, you're probably in a good place, in the judgment zone. Does that make sense? Can we move on? Heads up and down? Yes, yes, yes. Good. So... Now we move on from the moralizers, the holier-than-thou types, because now we've got to move on to the Jews, the Jewish Christians. The Jewish Christians, see, they got two trump cards up their sleeve. First of all, the moralistic card, I'm better than those other people because I behave better. Paul's already squashed that down. So they're saying, okay, Paul, you're going to squash that down, but we're still the children of Abraham. What are you going to do with that, Paul? We got the law. We got the Torah. We have been since the ancient... Times, as far as time can go back, God's chosen people. And Paul's not going to argue with that. But rather than me tell you what he's going to say, let's go straight to the text. And let's hear from Paul himself how he would respond to that. I'm going to ask you to bow your hearts and pray with me, and then we'll start on Romans 2.17. Father, we come to this crossroads today maybe in our own hearts and our own minds and we maybe maybe we wonder along with the the original recipients of paul's letter what is a true jew and 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 by that extension what is a true christian and maybe we wonder am i a true christian how do i know if i'm a true christian we want to be christians lord we want to be your people we want to be followers of jesus but are we Father, I pray by your grace that you would answer that question clearly for us today. 
that nobody would leave here wondering about their citizenship. Is it on earth or is it in heaven? That nobody would leave here wondering about the eternal state of their soul, but that we would all rest secure knowing that we belong to you. Help us to get there, Lord, using your word. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So to the text we go. Verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and you know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Ouch. Ironically, Paul is saying to the self-assured Jew, you're right, you are supposed to be a guide to the world that is blind. You're right, your life is supposed to show them how to live. You're actually supposed to show what it means to be truly human. That's what the law of God does. It tells you how you were meant to be and to live. The Jew of all people should be a light in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. But, but what do people see when they look at us, Paul is sort of implying here. What do people see? Do they see a better humanity? Do they see people living holy lives, loving neighbors, denying themselves, sacrificing for the poor, fighting for the oppressed? Is that what they see? Do they see in these Jewish communities, in our Jewish communities, little glimpses of heaven? No, no, they don't. Because you violate the law God has entrusted you with. It gets worse. He says it's worse. You're worse off than the ignorant pagans around you because you of all people should know better. You grew up going to worship, going to the temple. You sat in Sunday schools, it would have been Saturday schools. You sat in Saturday schools. You heard messages from the rabbis week after week. And what do non-believers see when they look at you? Nothing different. Nothing different. Sometimes even worse. And the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the people who are supposed to be blessing the Gentiles, who are supposed to be leading them to the feet of Almighty God to salvation. It's a huge offense. 
Now I ask you this. Can you hear a word of rebuke for the modern day church in what Paul is writing? Do you suppose there's a word here for us? Paul now anticipates what a Jew might say in response to this charge. Paul is a Jew, remember? He is a Pharisee. Paul is, was the most legalistic, most self-righteous Jew maybe that ever lived back in the day. He knows what's going so, 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 so listen to what he says next in verse 25. For circumcision, again, that's the mark of the Jew. That, that's, a, that's a big deal. For circumcision indeed is of value, okay, that's good, if you obey the law. <laughs> but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised, the non-Jew, he who is physically uncircumcised, but keeps the law, will condemn you. He will condemn you who have the written code and you have circumcision, but you break the law. If you say you're a Christian, but there's been no change in your heart, consequently no change in your lifestyle, watch out. Because those who aren't even believers, those who haven't even ever heard the name of Jesus, will rise up on judgment day and by their good works will condemn you. You who should have known better of all people. You who grew up with a house full of Bibles and a church on every street corner. Verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise, that person's praise, is not from man, but from God. That's as far as we'll go today. In the text, I think going any further might just exhaust us too much. It's a deep book. It's a tough letter. So that's why we're going to go slow. We're going to think about it. But aside from the Gospels, there's not another book in the Bible that's had this much influence on so many people than the book of Romans. So we're going to take our time and think about it. What is circumcision? Now, don't get all graphic with me, but uh, of all the weeks not to have kids worship, right? <laughs> have fun, parents. <laughs> um, my kids aren't here today. <laughs> uh 
No, what is it? It's a sign. You saw the, the thing with the, the rent sign during the Young Disciples message. It's a sign, right? It's a sign. Write this down. A sign. Uh, it's a sacrament. We, would call, we could call circumcision a sacrament. Like any other sacrament, it is a sign and a seal of a spiritual reality. So go ahead and put that down. You want to have that down. A sign and a seal of a spiritual reality. Now, a sacrament, here's what a sacrament does. Uh, for us, a sacrament is something, an ordinance that's given by Jesus, number one. Number two, it points to something beyond itself, a mystery of God. And number three, it, it uses earthy, very simple and very earthy uh, elements to make a really big spiritual point. So in circumcision, the element is skin. And the symbol that it's pointing to is what it's God cutting out a people, marking them, cutting out a people out of the world for himself. And here also, Paul's referencing that, 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 that prophecy that, Paul, that, that Chad read from Ezekiel 36. Paul is referencing that, saying circumcision is circumcision of the heart. And in effect, what he's saying is this prophecy that Ezekiel made back in Ezekiel 36 has come true, is coming true in Jesus and in the church. It's happening, folks. People are receiving new hearts this thing that circumcision was supposed to point to all along is now actually happening for reals. Pay attention. And it's also a seal. It's not only a sign, but it's a seal, a sacrament is, because it's always with you. It reminds you of your heritage, of who you're supposed to be. But without that understanding... Without understanding that this is a sign and a seal, without the heart and the mind being active around this, what good is circumcision? It's meaningless. It's meaningless. The Jews, they'd taken, uh, they, they had quit taking circumcision and the law seriously. And that's why I want you to write the next thing down that I have there, is that the problem in, in Rome... It really wasn't so much circumcision or the law. The problem was that the Jews mistook the symbols of their salvation for the reality of salvation. It's as if, it's like I said with the kids, the, the four rent sign. It's as, silly as, it's as silly as thinking that the sign is for rent for $1,000. Or if I had an ad for a, uh, a water company, right? If you had this in a magazine... Okay, ah, that looks so refreshing, doesn't it? I want some. I'm thirsty, especially because I've been talking for, some of you might say, too long. Uh, If you had this ad in a magazine in your hand, it would be like what the Jews are, how the Jews are treating circumcision. It's kind of like if they had this ad and they were saying, ah, my thirst is now satisfied. My thirst is now quenched because I'm holding this ad. And if you tricked yourself into believing that, what would eventually happen to you? You could die of thirst, right? It's ridiculous. It's so silly. And they are. They're going to die a spiritual death because they've convinced themselves that the sign is the actual thing. You see where Paul's going here? It's a problem. Paul's concern for them is also uh, his, his concern uh, for us too, for you and me. And it's how do you really know? If the sign isn't the thing, if the sacrament isn't the thing, how do you know if you're a real Jew? How do you know if you're a real Christian? The, the answer is kind of well, God has given us these sacraments to help us answer these questions. Well, you just said the sacrament isn't the thing. No, the sacrament isn't the thing. But God's given us the sacrament 
to help us answer these questions. Here's how this works. Jesus, he replaced circumcision with what? You know? Who knows? Holler. Baptism. Yes, he replaced circumcision with baptism. Now, does baptism save you? Everybody shake your head like this. Make sure you're still with me. Everybody wait. Good. No, but it's an important, it's a powerful sign. It uses something very earthy, water. Can't get more basic than that. And it points to something mysterious. The washing away and the forgiveness of sins. Who are the people of God? Those who have been chosen, washed, set apart. And baptism is a seal, just like circumcision, because it's always present with you. Now, you can't look in the mirror and see your baptism, but how is baptism always present with you? When we baptize someone else. Whenever we baptize someone else, a baby or an adult, it doesn't matter, you are reliving your own baptism. You are remembering how God has chosen you, washed you, and set you apart, and then by extension, who you're supposed to be because of that. Jesus gives one more sacrament in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and you know what that is. It's communion. He gives this to replace the sacrificial system. Two simple earthly elements, this time bread and wine, or bread and juice. And what is that, what do those elements point to? They point to Jesus' body that was broken, his blood that was shed. Now, sacraments, just like in Paul's day, can absolutely be boiled down to an empty superstition or to just a meaningless, thoughtless ritual. If you get baptized just to check a box in hopes that you don't go to hell when you die, that's a superstition. But if you haven't been baptized and you believe in Jesus, see me after church. You need to get baptized. I'll just throw that out there. No, that's a superstition. Thinking that's like a Jew assuming that he's good with God because he was circumcised on the eighth day. And you can take the Lord's Supper without much thought as well, without praying. And then you can walk away from the table unchanged. Now, if that's been your pattern your whole life, I don't know where your assurance of salvation comes from. Honestly, I don't know. If nothing happens, if this is a mindless thing that you do, I don't know if you're a believer or not. That sounds harsh. I mean, I'm supposed to be a loving, caring, tender pastor, I guess. But I also got to be real and tell you the truth. I don't know. But the Lord's Supper can also be a profound reminder of the assurance of your salvation. It can be the source of your unshakable faith. Because if you come to this table and number one, you believe. That's the simplest. Number one, you believe that Jesus is who he says he was and did what scripture says that he did. And that he can forgive your sins. Number one, you believe. Okay, but the Bible also says, you know, the devil believes in Jesus, right? So biblical belief isn't just the thought, although the thought is the first step. The second step is you hate your sin. You hate your sin. That's why this meal 
has been such a powerful tool in the hands of God because it is in preparing to take this meal that Christians are radically changed. God exposes in your heart, if you will just but let him and listen and ask him to, things that need to be changed. Sins that you haven't repented of. Areas of your life that you're holding back, you haven't given to him. He exposes all of that. People that you need to go and ask forgiveness or people that you need to forgive. God brings all of that to your mind as we prepare to take communion. You believe, you hate your sin, and then the third thing is you surrender. You give your life to God, no strings attached, nothing holding back. God, you can do whatever you want to do with me. My life is yours. It is bought. I am bought at a much high price. Because that's what you're about to do. You're about to eat a representation of the blood and the body of the Son of God, of a, an infinite gift that was given to you, that was given for you, killed and destroyed down into the grave. For you to forgive your sin, to take all your sin upon him. Of course God has the right to your entire life. Of course. So that's what you do. You believe. You hate your sin. And you give your life to God. Every time we do this. Every time we do this. And And if you can do that, or if you want to do that, you are saved. You belong to God because you in your sinful self and your own strength can do none of those three things. You can do none of those three things unless the Holy Spirit has grabbed you. And if the Holy Spirit has grabbed you, if Christ has purchased you, he is not going to let you go. He paid too high a price for you. Behold, your assurance of salvation to all who would believe, first the Jew and then the Gentile.